What does the name Alban Berg conjure up to you? For some, and certainly in some parts of the musical world, he has a kind of reputation as being not quite so frightening as his famous teacher and father figure, Arnold Schoenberg. Sibelius famously described Berg as Schoenberg's best composition. And another wag, given that Schoen means beautiful in German, said it was the wrong way round, that Schoenberg should be Berg and Berg should be Schoenberg. Anyway, certainly it's true that Berg followed Schoenberg into a tonality, in a way, and eventually into this technique called serialism and the infamous 12-note method, which dominated new music for nearly half a century. And Berg was just as enthusiastic, if not more so, than Schoenberg for the kind of complex geometrical mathematical constructions. But somehow, Berg's music seems to have got a reputation, and justly, as being more accessible, indeed perhaps more human. Really, it's quite possible to say that underneath the manner of Berg is a very late romantic, an inheritor not so much of Schoenberg, but of Gustav Mahler. And certainly Berg idolized Mahler. There's a story of him rushing into Mahler's dressing room after the first performance of the Sixth Symphony and storming out with Mahler's baton as a proud trophy, which he kept on his desk for the rest of his life. Certainly there'll be times listening to this concerto when it will sound to you definitely like School of Schoenberg, this sort of thing. Climax, that almost sounds like parody modern music, doesn't it? With those dissonances flung around the ensemble. Where's the sense of melody in this? Where's the harmonic movement? What's happening? It all seems so convulsed and dislocated. It's certainly a big challenge for our players today. The Manchester Camerata, with our soloists, violin Jack Liebeck, piano Martin Roscoe, and our conductor Douglas Boyd. But alongside passages like that, you'll find music that could, well, almost be Brahms, tinged perhaps with little Chopin arabesques. This passage, for instance, sounds as if it's in a key. Well, almost. Well, those are two passages from the first movement of Berg's chamber concerto, which he finished in 1925. Berg was 40 at the time. Now, that sounds like a very dry kind of second Viennese school title, doesn't it? Chamber concerto, Kammer concert. All it lacks is an opus number, but in fact, Berg gave up using opus numbers just before he wrote the chamber concerto, interestingly, for the opposite reason as Hindemith gave for giving up opus numbers at the same age. Berg was embarrassed because he'd written so few works. Hindemith was embarrassed because he'd written so many. But this is far from being a dry piece, as that second extract suggests. It's full of the sounds of Berg's home city of Vienna. Sometimes that kind of Viennese popular music that you hear is weirdly transformed, like, for instance, in the nightmare waltzes of Mahler's symphonies. But if it's a case of love-hate in Berg's relationship with Vienna, there's still clearly a lot of love. And just after that kind of slightly Brahmsy passage we heard, which is almost like a kind of memory of maybe Brahms's Liebeslieder Walzer, the love song waltzes, the second variation begins. And here, although elements of expressionist distortion creep in, you can still hear the waltz clearly in the background, and also something of the warmth and tenderness and even that untranslatable Viennese word Gemütlichkeit, coziness, conviviality, that's just so echt Viennese. Certainly, Berg felt more at home in Vienna than the bohemian-born Jewish composer and conductor Gustav Mahler.
Whatever happens there musically, that waltz motion is absolutely unmistakable behind that music, isn't it? It's definitely Viennese music. I love that enigmatic little touch there. Some of you have noticed where the violin just plucked his open strings for a second. The violin is actually otherwise completely silent in the first movement of this concerto. The violin's world opens out in the second movement, the slow movement. But just for a second, he intrudes on this world as like a musician off stage, just tuning his strings or making sure they're in tune. It's a very baggy little joke, and it might make a bit more sense later on, particularly when we come to the second movement. There are plenty of passages, though, in this concerto where it's very clear that there's a strong, personal, emotional charge. Not so much an ironic level to this music, but much more direct. The opening of the second movement, the violins movement, is highly charged. It's full of these chromatic harmonies that clearly have their roots somewhere in Wagner. Very wide leaps in the solo violin line, ebbing and flowing tempo, rubato. It's very much the language of late Romanticism. You can still hear Mahler, I think, behind this music. And even though the orchestra, in inverted commas, in this concerto is entirely composed of wind instruments, there are even little Mahlerian touches of colour. You think of Mahler particularly with the expressive power of the orchestral strings, but Berg manages to bring some Mahler woodwind colours into this music, as we heard just there, for instance, those tremolo clarinets. It's the sort of sound that you hear in Das Lied von der Erde or in the eerie Second Nachtmusik from the Symphony No. 7, this sort of sound. For some people, the harmonic language, especially of Berg, isn't easy to grasp at first hearing because he is so chromatic, because he'll give you something that sounds reassuringly tonal one moment and then pull the rug from under your feet the next. It's almost like Wagner's Tristan gone mad at times. And that's still true more than three quarters of a century after the chamber concerto appeared. So by way of a kind of introduction to the harmonic language of the chamber concerto, here's a little palette-preparing aperitif. Berg's first officially acknowledged composition, his opus one, his piano sonata of 1908. This is the first phrase, Martin. It's a very short sonata. It's only just in one movement. And it's still in the key of B minor. It's being described as a sonata in B minor, although, again, it's only just in B minor. There's that intensely melancholic lyrical romanticism. And at the end, the music seems to slip gradually back into the key of B minor, as though wrapping it up in the old-fashioned manner. But it still only just resolves. It doesn't really completely resolve the kind of emotional chromatic tension that's in the music before.
Well, there's definitely a tonal chord at the end, isn't there? There's that chord of unmistakable, which he repeats several times just to make sure we've got the point of B minor. There it is. Thank you very much, Martin. But even so, there are still little flickers of other things, slight dissonant inflections going on that for a moment leave you in doubt. Are we in D minor? Is this the home key? Have we come home at the end or haven't we? And what's interesting is that although Berg is supposed to have followed Schoenberg over the edge of the cliff into complete atonality, that's the official party line that was peddled by the Schoenbergians certainly when I was growing up, there are many features of that early sonata which find echo in the chamber concerto written nearly 20 years later, especially those kind of doleful, chromatically falling harmonies that are so much a feature of the sonata, harmonies like this. We're almost in blues territory there, aren't we? And even though the tune, the melody in the right hand on top of that, even though it seems to aspire to rise upwards, those falling sad sevenths always seem to pull the music down emotionally. Now listen to this passage from the finale of the Chamber Concerto. It's a moment of aching nostalgia. The language may have intensified a bit melodically in terms of chromaticism, but the harmonies underneath it on the wind band are still more or less the same as those falling seventh harmonies that we've just heard in the piano sonata. Still very much the same kind of sensibility going on there. He's still the same kind of way of moving. You can imagine him discovering the chords at the, at the piano in exactly the same way in those two examples. And that moment, as I described it, as nostalgic, it's still more effective and still more telling, I think, when you actually hear it in its context in the finale, because what happens is that that music interrupts in a very striking way, the otherwise hectic, on the surface seemingly rather jolly music of this scherzando finale. context, it's almost like a kind of flashback, isn't it? It's, it's something almost cinematic about that. You notice the way that the violin started to play his nostalgic, lyrical, pensive music before the piano had stopped playing his kind of scherzando, flying all over the place stuff, and suddenly everybody stops, and you're left with this moment of sad, nostalgic, melancholy stillness. It's one of those moments, you can almost imagine it like a memory emerging out of the kind of the shadows into the forefront of the mind, a memory of something kind of sweet but painful all at the same time. It kind of stops you in its tracks, 
just as that music stops that hectic finale in its tracks, for a moment, for a moment. Berg was very interested in cinema techniques. Even in his opera Lulu, for instance, at the height of the second act, there's a silent film which he specified should be recorded for the first performance. In most productions today, it's replaced by strobe lighting. But actually, it's, a, it's an extraordinary moment. It's right at the center point of the piece. And clearly, the idea of cinema was clearly very important to Berg. And there's an effect rather like cross-cutting in cinema filming. Uh, at the end of the first movement, or rather the moment where the first movement ceases, and you suddenly discover that the second movement has already started, because Berg asks the violin to start playing before the hectic first movement, Tutti, has finished. It's nothing like a kind of classical transition, or even those slow, evolving transitions that you get in Wagner's music dramas. One minute, you're in the first movement, in which the piano is the spotlit soloist, and then suddenly that's gone. You're in the slow movement, the violin's world, a very different world. When you hear that in the context of the performance, that sudden change, not just in musical texture, but to a completely different soloist, is a very dramatic and striking effect. I can't think of anything, certainly in the concerto repertoire before then, that works quite like that. It's a lovely original touch. But this change of the soloist between the movements brings us to the question of the broad outlines of the concerto, because like most classical concertos, this chamber concerto of Berg's is in three movements. The first movement is a theme and five variations. The piano is the soloist, and the violin is silent, except for that one tiny little moment. The second movement is a big ABA ternary slow movement. Now the violin is the soloist, and the piano is silent, Again, except for one very telling little passage. Finally, in the rondo, both soloists come together. First of all, in a kind of cadenza, just for the violin and piano, and then together with the orchestra in what Berg calls a rondo ritmico, a rhythmic rondo. Now, Berg wrote a kind of open letter to Schoenberg to accompany his offering of the score to his teacher, in which he said that these three movements represent ideas. They represent, respectively, he said, friendship, love, and the world. Now, the friendship one and the world one are somewhat difficult to divine in places, but the love one, as we'll see, is highly relevant, as it almost invariably is in Berg's music. The structure, however, is, in, is full of extraordinary devices and symbols. First of all, let's have a look at the purpose of the concerto, and that will bring us to some of the symbols right at the start. It was written in honor of Schoenberg's 50th birthday. Actually, typically, Berg was a bit late with it and only finished it the following year, which happened to be his own 40th birthday. But the concerto begins with a kind of coded musical tribute to Schoenberg and Schoenberg's other pupil, Anton Webern, his other famous pupil. Berg absolutely loved codes. He loved them even more than his revered musical idol Schumann. And you can spend hours with this score, as many academics have, picking out codes that he used. Here, at the beginning of the concerto, in a little passage before the first movement starts properly, it's called Motto. He plays with the names of Schoenberg, Webern, and Berg. Now, fortunately for German composers, they've got a few more useful letters in their musical alphabet. We've only got A, B, C, D, E, F, G. They've also got a letter H, which is what we call B natural. 
whereas there B is B flat, so you've got B and H. But also, with a little bit of punning, they've got an S as well, which is ESS, which means E flat, which is highly convenient for Schoenberg because you've got SCH, the letters of his name. So at the beginning of the concerto, in this motto passage, Berg spells out the letters of Schoenberg's name that you can represent as notes. A-D-S-C-H-B-E-G, which is A-D-E-flat-C-H-B-flat-E-G. And that's purposely given to the piano, because the piano is the all-embracing instrument, just as Berg and Schoenberg felt that their great teacher was the musically all-embracing figure. Then the lyrical violin presents the musical letters that make up the name Anton Webern. A-E-B-E, A-E-B-flat-E. Here it is. Then the arch-romantic instrument, the horn, representing the wind band as well, presents Berg's musical letters, A-B-flat, A-B-flat, E-G. It's a rather nice effect that I'm sure Berg would have enjoyed that the horn shyly, as it were, imitates the letters of Schoenberg, the final letters of Schoenberg's name in his theme on the piano at the end there, just as Berg was inclined to be a little deferential and shy in Schoenberg's presence himself. Friendship, Berg said, was the theme of the first movement, and it's developed in the variations that followed. And the motives are hinted at again, and they return sometimes as obvious themes in the concerto. But the Schoenberg motif in particular has a big moment in the finale, where it emerges grandly in full wind harmonies, almost like an organ here at this point. But again, with more of those sliding, descending blue seventh harmonies underneath. I do love that scoring there. He really does make the windbound sound like an organ for a moment, doesn't it? It's, or a harmonium, maybe. It's an extraordinary sound. And back to that motto passage there at the beginning of the concerto. Berg writes three German words over the top of this. Alle guten Dinge, all good things. And this is a reference to an old German saying that's often repeated on birthdays. All good things come in threes, like, for instance, the three members of the second Viennese school, as they were sometimes called, Berg, Schoenberg, and Webern. But it's also like the three movements of the concerto. It's also like the three voices that we heard in the motto and which, in a way, are represented on the platform, the piano, the violin, and the wind band. You can play these name games with Berg forever. He was particularly fond of the number 23, for instance, and the huge sections of this piece, if you add up the bar numbers, they turn out to be multiples of threes or 23. It's the kind of game he loved playing. But there is a purpose as well here. Including the soloists, there are 15 instruments in this ensemble here, which is three times five. It's the same number as the number of instruments in Schoenberg's first chamber symphony. Now, in Schoenberg's first chamber symphony, the winds heavily outnumber the strings, and that does create sometimes a bit of a balance problem. But Berg takes Schoenberg's eight woodwind and two horns and adds a piccolo, a trumpet, and a trombone. It does make for a more practical balance here than in the Schoenberg Chamber Symphony. I don't know if that was a thought of an implied bit of sly criticism of his teacher and father figure. Maybe not at this point, but certainly when we look at later in this piece, you'll realize that there is an interesting critical subtext possibly going on in this concerto. For now, though, let's have a look at another fascinating technical stunt that Berg pulls in this concerto. Actually, it's much more than a stunt. The finale is marked rondo ritmico, and Berg was very interested in rhythm. In this concerto, he develops a new way of using it. One thing you can do is change the rhythm while keeping the pitches the same. There's a very good audible example of this if you listen to the clarinet line in the theme from the first movement. <laughs> 
just so that you get those pictures in your head. I would do, Fiona, if you'd mind just playing that once more. Now, towards the end of the third movement, the rondo ritmico, you get exactly the same notes shared between the violin and the first horn, but the rhythm is completely different. You see, the notes are the same, but the rhythm, the character, transformed. Berg loves playing games like that. There's one rhythm he picks out for a special significance in this concerto. He calls it the Hauptrhythmus, the head rhythm, or the leading rhythm. You heard it, for example, in that agitated passage in that we heard earlier in the second movement. The violin plays this. Now, Jack, would you mind just singling out on one note the rhythm of that passage? There's something very urgent about this rhythm, like a kind of challenge. It often injects a kind of drive back into the music just when it's becoming ruminative or melancholy, a little bit like a call to action or a reminder of some sort of fate significance. For instance, in this passage, you have the violin playing dreamy arpeggios across the string, rather like in Berg's violin concerto, and then suddenly in comes that rhythm again, and suddenly everything is drive and urgency all over again. Now, not surprisingly, that fateful rhythm, da, dum, dum, da, da, plays a particularly important part in the finale, the rondo ritmico. At the final climax, just listen to what the violin is playing as he digs deep down onto his lowest string, the G string. As the orchestra and the piano rush forwards in frenzy, the violin digs away at this rhythm at the bass. You'll hear the violin repeating that over and over again in the midst of all this orchestral frenzy. And then suddenly, the texture explodes like a kind of musical jack-in-a-box, and fragments of motifs are scattered all over the place. And that, believe it or not, is how the concerto ends. What a fantastic ending. Actually, that last chord there that the violin plucks out is a sort of a tonal chord, but it's about as unconclusive as the end of the piano sonata we heard earlier was conclusive. The last notes the violin plays spell out a kind of ninth chord on G, the dominant of C major. On the piano, it sounds like this. 
See, it resolves beautifully in C major, and yet anything less like a conventional tonal resolution really would be hard to imagine. Well, if this all sounds a bit abstract, this use of fate motives or rhythms taken as isolation like isorhythms in a medieval motet, surely that final climax suggests not. Jack, could you just play us again that syncopated rhythm? This rhythm that Berg uses is very much like a kind of syncopated rhythm in a work that Berg adored, Mahler's Ninth Symphony. There's a rhythm on one note that begins Mahler's Ninth, which Leonard Bernstein famously compared to the beat of Mahler's faltering heart. This is more or less how it appears at the beginning of the Ninth Symphony. I'll count in four, and Jack will play against it, okay? One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. That rhythm that dogs the chamber concerto, the rhythm that Berg called the Hauptrhythmus, is very similar to that, and must have had that similar kind of fateful significance for Berg as it had for Mahler in the first movement of his Ninth Symphony. But there was another famous syncopated rhythm in a work that had a huge influence on Berg, and that's Wagner's Tristan. We've mentioned it already. At the heart of the work, at the, right at the heart of the second act, as the great love duet between Tristan and Isolde begins, there's an extraordinary syncopated dragging rhythm on the orchestra in the background, like a kind of throbbing, pulsing figure. It accompanies the words, Oh, sinkt hier nieder, nach der Liebe, sink down upon us, night of love. Perhaps Martin could just demonstrate that for us. It's that sound of love, the absolute archetypal sound of love music for the German Romantic School. There we are, in the middle of the night, the doomed lovers momentarily forgetting themselves and the passing of time in the intoxication of love. It's all very Berg. He was always falling in love with one person or another and always filling his works with references to it in nice little coded ways. But there's an interestingly slightly different kind of relevance here to the chamber concerto. It's all connected with what seems like another very formal abstract device. But as I've said before, nothing's ever entirely abstract in Berg. Something really weird and wonderful happens right at the heart of the second movement, the violin's world. The world, according to Berg's open letter to Schoenberg, of love. Here, the piano makes its brief but very telling intrusion. It's a kind of mirror of the violin's tuning up intrusion in the first movement. And mirror is rather apt here, as we'll see in a moment. Right dead center in the second movement, the piano enters with 12 low C sharps, like the tolling of an ominous midnight bell. Did you notice that the way the brass harmonies rose and then fell? They actually rose and fell, not just by the same notes melodically, but by the same harmonies as well, because that passage actually plays exactly the same backwards as forwards, not just in terms of the notes, but the rhythms as well. And it isn't just that passage, but the whole passage of which that forms the centerpiece is a perfect musical palindrome, a mirror image. It's not just that little central moment, it's the whole lead in and out. Actually, when you hear the passage, you can hear it. The tutti dives down, and then we have this moment of stillness, and then it erupts back to front, almost like someone playing a film backwards.
In fact, whole sections of this movement behave like that. You get the music one way round, and then Berg, as it were, stops the film and runs it backwards. A perfect musical palindrome. Okay, so it's an interesting device. But there's something else going on here, something which it seems that people weren't aware of for a very long time after Berg's death. It wasn't until people began to have a look at his manuscript and his sketches that intriguing things began to emerge. Just listen to what the horn plays right in the middle of that uh, mirror passage there. The romantic horn, remember it was the horn that was associated with Berg's name right at the beginning of the concerto. Thank you to our horn player, Naomi Atherton, there. Those notes are A, B, D, E, or in German, A, H, D, E. Doesn't seem obvious what that might mean at first. But above it, in the sketch, Berg scribbled what looks like the name Matilda. And if you take the letters A, H, D, and D, they are the musical letters of the name Matilda. Now, Matilda was the name of Arnold Schoenberg's first wife. Surely that's part of the tribute to Schoenberg on his 50th birthday. But now we're on very dangerous emotional territory indeed. Matilda was seriously ill at the time that Berg began the Chamber Concerto, and she died soon afterwards. Berg and Webern were both very worried about her, rather more worried, it seems, than Schoenberg himself seemed to be. Well, there was a bit of a story going on here, I'm afraid. Schoenberg's marriage had gone horribly wrong around about 1907 to 8, the time when Schoenberg was working on his ultimate crisis work, his second string quartet. Matilda, obviously finding Schoenberg's obsessive devotion to his art, his fanaticism, and his rather dominating obsessive character difficult to deal with, had had an affair with a younger man, a brilliant but unstable painter by the name of Richard Gerstel. Schoenberg was horrified, partly because Gerstel was a very close and trusted friend. Matilda was persuaded eventually to return. Think of the children, was the argument some of the friends used. But Gerstel couldn't bear it and killed himself. Schoenberg was devastated by this. And for Matilda, it was even worse. She went into a kind of permanent psychological decline. It seems she never really recovered. And Berg clearly felt huge compassion and sorrow for Matilda. So is that why there might just possibly be a hint of the fated lovers from Tristan and Isolde in his own Hauptrhythmus, that fatal midnight, the echoes of the night of love in Tristan, and the turning back of the music at that point, just as Tristan at one point says, oh, if only we could turn back time. This in itself refers back to one of the most famous lines of all in all German poetry, one of the great lines of all, it's German equivalent of almost to be or not to be, from Faust by Goethe. Wenn du kannst dem Moment sagen, verweile dich doch, du bist so schön. When you can say to the moment, stay, stay, you are just too beautiful. That's almost as though what Berg is trying to do at this moment, where he turns the music back to front, turn time backwards. Let's not have fate take us the way that it has inevitably to go. But no, the fate rhythm decrees otherwise, and the concerto drives on to that strange, fragmented, broken conclusion. So, that palindromic device clearly also has a kind of elegiac purpose. This is clear from another passage in the slow movement where Berg reverses the music that we heard. First of all, in this passage from the second movement, we have this kind of falling figure on the violin. The tones, listen, contract to semitones, and then, rather more extraordinarily, to quarter tones. If that sounds slightly painful, it's clearly meant to be. This is a really intense, painful lament. Now in the recap section of this movement, that's literally turned back to front. 
and it acquires a new note. Those figures aren't lugubriously, sadly falling. Now they're rising. And there's something else in this music now, isn't there? Possibly even a note of protest or anger. An academic by the name of Brenda Darlan has pointed out strong resemblances between some of the motives in Schoenberg's tone poem Pelias and Melisande and some of the motives that Berg uses in this chamber concerto. Pelias and Melisande is a highly charged and intensely tragic portrait of what I suppose you might call the love triangle from hell. The frail and beautiful Melisande is married to the grim, tormented, but all too human Golo. But she falls inevitably for the much more gentle, sensitive Pelias, brother of Golo. In a rage, Golo kills Pelias, and Melisande slowly, gradually wastes away. Schoenberg wrote this at the time of Matilda's own involvement with Gerstel, in which case it sounds horribly appropriate to what was going on in his own personal life as well, and horribly prophetic of what was going to happen to Matilda. Now, Berg should know these motives. He knew them very well indeed, because he published an analysis of Pelias and Melisande and carefully labelled all the motives. And this is what he called the Melisande motive in Schoenberg's Pelias and Melisande. And here's something very similar, marked M in Berg's sketches, introduced by the oboe in the slow movement of the chamber concerto, and it's preceded by angry, rising figures on the violin. There's a still more extraordinary appearance of the Melisande theme, or something very like it, in Berg's concerto. Jack, would you mind just playing that little Melisande motif again, please? Keep that in your mind now as we listen to the climax of the Adagio, where that fate motive is heard for the first time. The trumpet here has that motive, and it's marked Alice Ubertonend, sounding out clearly over everything. It's introduced by a crescendo, which again is led by a version of that fate rhythm on the violin. You can hear how the beginning of that Melisande motif kind of falls apart through that passage that follows until it's left with that rather acrid sound on the muted trombone at the end there. Very poignant. Berg seems to be making some sort of point. Well, what is it? Well, there's a hint in that open letter he wrote to Schoenberg, accompanying the score as this kind of double-edged birthday present. Berg tries to explain why he spent so much time in this letter dwelling on numbers and proportions, etc. And he says, it's kind of when you know what's going on here, it becomes rather more significant. As a composer, it's much easier to speak of such external matters than of the inner processes, in which respect this concerto is certainly no poorer than any other music. He goes on, I tell you, dearest friend, that if it were known exactly what I have smuggled into these three movements of friendship, love, and the world, in the way of human spiritual references, the adherences of program music, if indeed there are still such, 
would be absolutely delighted. But would Schoenberg have been delighted if he'd known what Berg was including in this music? I very much doubt it. On one level, the Chamber Concerto clearly is a tribute to Schoenberg, the man who encouraged Berg to reach beyond writing romantic little songs to big, ambitious works. In a sense, Berg is saying, without you, I'd never have been able to write a piece like that. And in the climax of the finale, where we hear Schoenberg's theme produced by the woodwind and the brass in full, that magnificent organ-like scoring, this clearly is a big tribute to Schoenberg. Look, you have made me what I am. Clearly, that's no regret about that. Yet on another level, Berg seems to have smuggled in another message, something perhaps he felt he wanted to say but couldn't in any other way. A lament for the wife of this amazing and yet obsessive driven man, the wife Schoenberg neglected, who tried to find love somewhere else and paid a terrible price. Berg was always drawn to these kind of women victim figures in his music and certainly responded to it over again with great, great poignancy. There's possibly a parallel here with another great classic of the German language, Franz Kafka's Letter to My Father, which was written very much around about the same time as the Berg Concerto. Kafka's father was a powerful, virile, male, dominant figure, all that in some ways Kafka felt he wanted to be and couldn't be. But he was also a bully, especially to his wife and to his sensitive, vulnerable son. So Kafka poured out his feelings about his father in a huge letter to him, but he never sent it contents remained a secret from his father. So here's Schoenberg, a powerful, crucial figure for Berg, made him as a composer, bullied him too, there's no doubt about it. He was obsessive, fanatical, intolerant, and clearly quite a damaging influence on his own wife. But Berg burned with compassion, and it seems possibly anger, for Melisande, for Schoenberg's tragic wife, Matilda. Schoenberg may have felt she was his betrayer, or was she his victim? Berg put all his secret pity and rage into the chamber concerto, or so it seems. It's a work that often seems strangely poised between humour, warmth, even Viennese Gemütlichkeit, and something much, much darker, as so often in Alban Berg's music. Well, there'll be a chance for you to see what you think of all that in a moment. But first of all, I think we should have a word with our two soloists, and maybe with our conductor too, about this extraordinary work. Now, Martin... How important do you think is it to know about Berg's emotional life or his feelings when you approach a work like this? Um, well, I think it's sort of almost self-evident in the, in the music. It's, it's incredibly romantic and personal and intense. I mean, it's fascinating to examine the codes and to know about them, but at the end of the day, the message is one which is intensely personal. Well, I think that's what's interesting for me because clearly, you know, people perform this work for generations without knowing about any of these codes and they clearly got what it was about. That's the fascinating thing, isn't it? Absolutely. What about you, Jack? Does it, do, you, do you approach this, first of all, as an abstract piece of music or is there, is there a kind of storyline, a musical storyline going on here? The good thing about this, kind of, this piece is that the emotions and feelings behind the music come through the music itself. You don't actually need a degree in mathematics and... Uh, musical analysis to to actually feel the music it's evident when you're playing it that suddenly you notice oh wait this is this you know that theme i had earlier on but upside down and backwards mm. and all this stuff well what about you douglas the um the conducting point of view i mean on the one hand this is a composer who's legendarily intellectual on the other hand he's as passionate as Mahler. is there a problem in balancing that or, or does Berg really do the work for you in that no, respect I, th I think it's the same as any truly great composer and if I compare Berg to Beethoven, in many ways I don't approach it any differently, in the sense that an understanding of the analysis of a Beethoven symphony, the sonata form, the structure, the architecture of it, also the sense of classical style, these are the building blocks on which a conductor puts his vision, hopefully, and his fantasy, mm -hmm. and so it comes out of the page and no, is no longer a work of academia, mm -hmm. but becomes a living breathing work of music that's relevant to today. And in, in Berg, it's exactly the same. I think it's incredibly useful from my point of view to understand the, the, the techniques that go into writing this, the structure of it, using the rhythms, how he inverts them, how he does them retrograde, etc. But, but beyond that, the, the emotion of the piece then starts to take off for me. And you were, use, you were making this example of the um, absolute middle of the slow movement, mm. this palindromic effect where the music grinds to a, a halt and we have the midnight tolling bells of the piano and then 
the, uh, the music takes off literally backwards. Mm. And, and it's interesting from, from two points of view. One is this unbelievable sense of structure of how the music is, a, is an almost exact mirror image of itself. But on a dramatic and an emotional uh, level, as you uh, suggested earlier, I mean, I, I, I think it's an absolutely extraordinary moment. It's almost as if you have this un, almost unbearable tension alike to a coiling of a, of a spring and it can no longer be held any uh, tighter and it gets to this moment of the midnight bells and then it starts to unravel and go backwards. And, and so there's an emotional tension that's built on a, on a structural tension as well. This is the fascinating thing, isn't it? Because in so much of the music that followed Schoenberg, and indeed in some of Schoenberg's music yourself, you read about these extraordinary devices, and then you listen to the music and think, well, I can't feel anything. Where is the actual audible effect of all this cleverness? But with Berg, it's always there. It's there, it? but fundamentally, I think, for the audience, for the, for the lovers of music, the most important thing for me is that uh, this is music that can express... Uh, humor, these Viennese waltzes, it can express love and it can express terror. Mm. And uh, I've, I've, I say this all the time when I'm talking in concerts, but that's what defines music and what makes it relevant to us today. And in the same way that Beethoven can do this, going back mm. to the analogy with Beethoven, Berg does the exactly the same, but we just have to discover the language. Thank you. It's time now we heard exactly how all these extraordinarily diverse elements come together in this extraordinary piece of musical richness that is Alvan Berg's Chamber Concerto. Here it is performed for us by the violinist Jack Liebeck, the pianist Martin Roscoe, and the Manchester Camerata, conducted by Douglas Boyd. 